I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Before we start our episode today, this is just a reminder. History Hack does have a Patreon account and all of your donations are gratefully appreciated. There's lots of perks on there, secret groups on Facebook. Do get involved. We would love to see more of you. Enjoy the episode today. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Um, I'm co-hosting today with Alex, it's Beth here. Always look forward to uh, doing some recordings and uh, finding out some really interesting stuff and we have got something really interesting for you today. Alex, who have we got with us today? We have been neglectful so far on Boaty Week. We've had no World War II. I know that Giles at least is out there going, where's the World War II? So today... We have World War Two, but we have not like not necessarily a well-known part of World War Two because we have Phil Weir with us, the amazing Dr. Phil Weir, who knows all things about all boats and ships. And uh, he's going to talk to us about something different. You didn't want to go down because you obviously have written the little ships of Dunkirk and you could blabber on about Dunkirk for days. But you've decided to do something niche, haven't you, today, Phil? How are you? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, um... What I've decided to go for is um, the very little known um, carrier airstrike by the home fleet um, almost exactly 80 years ago. The, uh, the um, anniversary is on the 30th of July um, of so Royal Navy's carrier airstrike on Finland. Now, not, not many people know about this. <laughs> Beth's just shaking her head like, what's Finland? Uh, no. <laughs> no, not quite. Not quite. Uh, Finland, World War II boats. Uh, we're very far out of our wheelhouse today, aren't we, Beth? So shall we find out first yeah. what's going on in general? Because as far as I know, as a, a pretty novice on World War II, we're not at war with Finland, are we? No. And this is, of course, the whole fun bit. Now... A lot of the, this all basically hinges on, of course, Operation Barbarossa, the German invasion of the Soviet Union that uh, that they kick off on twenty second of June, nineteen forty one. Now, obviously, most people know about um, the German invasion across what was now divided Poland between um, after the. Uh, after Poland and the Soviet, uh, after Germany and the Soviet Union invaded Poland, uh, they just sort of crunch across uh, their their newly agreed border um, on the twenty second. But there are other operations mixed in there as well. Um, now, key area to go for is the north, and of course Germany has invaded Norway. April 1940, and uh, the, the Allies have evacuated in June um, of that year. So, you know, the, the Germans have got a force in Norway, and you've also got um, the you know, it's, it's wonderfully complex. You've also got the small fact that, um, of course, you've got Finland in there, 
which has fought a war against the Soviet Union, um, the the Winter War of um, was it uh, no, 1939 through to uh, to early 1940, where Finland's lost a certain amount of uh, of, uh, of land. They're also now basically sort of trapped between Germany and the Soviet Union, which is. This is an uncomfortable place yeah. to be. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is not is... where anybody wants to be. No fun. No. Um, and it's it's interesting. The, um, of course, during the Winter War, um, Britain and France particularly had sort of been prevaricating over whether to to declare war on the uh, on the side of Finland and declare war on the Soviet Union. I mean, after all. The USSR's invaded Poland and all this sort of thing as well. And it's, this is a live issue. In the end, they decide not to. And, of course, the, the sort of perceived lack of action brings down the French government um, about a month or two before, uh, um, before of course, Chamberlain falls. Um, so That's when Grandad arrives, isn't it? Indeed. So there's there's all of this in the mix. And sort of stuck there between Germany and a hostile Soviet Union um, without any ability to rely on the Allies. Um, you know, the, France has now fallen and so forth. Finland kind of ends up falling towards Germany somewhat. Um, and there is... I mean, basically, the bottom line is Operation Barbarossa in the north is launched, and there is a certain amount of Finnish cooperation in there. Um, you know, the, certainly, the, the Soviets accuse the um, Finns of allowing German bombers to stage through Finnish airfields on their way into to bomb uh, bomb Soviet Union, and. Um, uh, you know, literally on the on the twenty second, and the uh, and the Soviets basically respond on the twenty second itself. I mean, it's, it's quite remarkable. I think um, you almost get a faster response to um, Finnish participation in Operation Barbarossa than you do, <laughs> um, you know, by the Soviets than you do Soviet response to the actual German invasion. Um, and they they launch a, a brief bombing raid actually on the evening of the twenty second um, in retaliation. Um, slightly larger one on the twenty fifth, um, which you know, effectively allows the the Finns to uh, to declare a defensive war, largely sort of in concert with Germany, um, and start what's known as the continuation war, which they they sort of launch into. Um, Launch into north. Well, actually, it's predominantly into Karelia and the, the territories that had been lost to the Soviet Union in the Winter War, uh, and they they launched that in uh, in early July 1940, uh, 1941. Sorry. So, on top of this, um, you've got, as I say, German forces in Norway, then moving in towards um into the north of russia um so what's britain's response to all of this well you know, as i say it's, it's all been relatively complicated up to now um and 
Britain and uh, and France had almost declared war on behalf of Finland um, when the Soviet Union had invaded them first time round. But now, of course, with the German invasion of Russia, uh, to borrow Grandad's line, I should at least give favourable reference to the devil in the House of Commons. Um, <laughs> Did you practice that? That's very good. I do. I do. I, I especially for these. Particularly yeah. for you, Alex. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, basically, Britain is now allied with uh, with the Soviet Union, um, and you know they they are starting to develop a, a military relationship. But Finland has now sort of invaded the Soviet Union, so. All very complicated, and um, yeah, Britain is basically being pressured to do something about the uh, the invasion in the north. So essentially, Britain is now by default, by being allied with the USSR, is by default at war with Finland. Um, sort of. Not really. I mean, <laughs> war is never actually declared, mm. but um, the relations are not, um, There's not no terribly good at this on. point because of you know, obvious reasons. Phil, it's obviously quite clear that, you know, as you've just mentioned, there's been there's you know, Britain finds itself sort of quasi at war or not within within not good relations with Finland, at least anyway. So why do we find ourselves in an area that we're not familiar with, and certainly I'm not familiar with, and places that we've never, I've never heard of them before? Is it Petsamo and Murmansk? You said, like, where even are these places? Why are they important? (laughs) Right. Um, Well, the key to all of this is is Murmansk. Um, It's the port in uh, northern Russia, um, very close to at this point, the, uh, the, the Finnish border. Um, it's a quite a remarkable place. And just to, to you know, bring it back to your specialization, Beth, um, it's a city and a port that was founded in the First World War. Yeah. And the purpose of it, um, it was founded with the help of the British. The purpose of it was quite simply to um, get an ice-free port through which Britain could supply its Russian ally. Um, and they, they they start sort of constructing the port in about 1915 through to 1917. Um, and you actually start getting um, Arctic convoys going up uh, during the First World War to try to keep the the, uh, the Russian Empire actually in the war. I just laughing so hard because anytime someone mentions a convoy in the Baltic, I just think of Uncle Albert going, it was so cold, the flavour of my lighter froze. <laughs> During the war, yeah, <laughs> it's always on about the uh, Russian convoys, but that's obviously World War Two. What we're talking about, not World War One. Well, yeah, so, so you, you've you've actually got convoys in both, so mm. um, actually going the same way. So it's the, this is the reason that Mamansk has been founded, and obviously with Britain now allied to the Soviet Union, um, yeah. Anybody with half a brain knows that this is basically what's going to happen again. The uh, the British are going to um, start running supply routes through to Murmansk. Now, just up the coast from Murmansk, of course, as is 
um, the Finnish border um, and the uh, the mining town of Petsamo, uh, which has a port there. It's lots of nickel mines as well, which were rather important for the, for the Germans um, and for the, uh, the German war machine. And slightly further, that is the uh, um, Norwegian port town of Hirkines, uh, dreadful pronunciation. I apologize already to any Norwegians. Um, so it's, it's basically these three ports you know, right at the, the top of Europe. You, know, you can sort of imagine the top of Norway. This is this is where we're talking about um, the, the deeply frozen high north. Um, so, yeah, the the uh, the Germans basically send their um, a chunk of their occupying force in Norway under General Dietl, um, their, their specialized mountain troops, basically, um, through into uh, into the Soviet Union to try to capture Mamansk to stop British resupply convoys. Um, but the trouble is, is that the roads to you know, basically between um, Hirkenes and Mamansk is sort of pretty much only one road and it's it's pretty ropey to be honest so what it's where they your have boats to come do... in yay that's <laughs> that is the one that's absolutely right what they have to do is run resupply by sea and start shifting um general detail's gear through the ports um across at Kinez uh, and Petsamo and thereafter um on, on the uh, the roads into uh, uh into the soviet union and also of course as I say, there's lots of uh, lots of nickel mining going on there that uh, the germans are very interested in so this is really where um you know, the key issue the you know, the russians want to stop German resupply getting through to their their troops that are invading and and heading from the Mansk. So and of course, it's in to, British sorry, interest to do to so. Just to lay this lay this out, we've got Finns running into the Soviet territory, um, and Germans also going into uh, Soviet territory, just slightly different area. Yeah, so uh, everyone's going the same way. Yeah, and we want to stop. Britain wants to stop both. Yeah, Britain wants to to stop the the supply line to those troops mm. um, that are heading into Soviet territory, and also inevitably protect Murmansk because mm-hmm. that's the key supply line through which Britain is going to try to to help and uh, and supply the Soviet army. So that's that is the uh, the, the bottom line of the situation. So. <laughs> this sounds horrific just for the weather alone uh who's who draws the straw short straw in terms of so obviously you're saying there's no road so the britain's going to send in boats who draws the yeah. short straw who gets sent how why well it's the royal navy's home fleet mm-hmm. um sat up in the scapa flow the guys who've uh you know, fairly recently sunk the bismarck um and uh you know spent the previous year operating off Norway and so forth. Um, under their commander-in-chief, Admiral Sir Jack Tovey, who's um, a marvellous character, um, extremely forthright and absolutely no qualms whatsoever about uh, 
telling his bosses what run largely what he <laughs> thinks of them. In the best tradition of the Royal Navy, being a pain. Absolutely, of right? <laughs> Definitely. I mean, he, he's uh, he, he's he's fascinating. He. he and he almost actually doesn't get the job in the first place, um, owing to the fact that he has a slightly stormy interview with uh, with Grandad, um, where Churchill starts going off on one about uh, how um, poor Britain's naval preparations were before the war and how it was all the fault of the Admiralty. And um, yeah. So I'm it, guessing that it was far better in World War One when I was in charge line. Yeah, and um, I had my shit together. That just sounds like the kind of egotistical perception I can imagine. Yeah, and strangely enough, uh, this this didn't go down terribly well with uh, with Admiral Tovey, who responded <laughs> in, in no uncertain terms. And I think that there was a sort of brief pause where he sort of ended up stepping out of the room and. Uh, uh, the the first sea lord sort of steps out and says, you know, don't, don't worry, you've still got the job. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost the best showdown I can remember from World War One is uh, naval again, where uh, Fisher's kicking off. And I think Kitchener loses his shit completely and just walks over to the window um, and just stands there looking out the window. And the rest of the cabinet's like, oh, God, he's really pissed off now what are we gonna do and i can't remember who it is who goes over to go um is everything okay <laughs> to try and get him to come back and risk <laughs> getting their head ripped off but yeah it strikes me as being one of those kind of interviews yeah it, it was approximately that and i mean it, he he was he was in line to become first sea lord after dudley pound dies in 1943 but um doesn't get it partly because um, the guy who does get it, Admiral Cunningham, is sort of more famous, better known, uh, more victories, and all this sort of thing, and is also more slightly more senior. Um, but also because Churchill basically doesn't want to put up with getting told um, that you know, his his plans nuts um, in no uncertain terms, even more frequently. <laughs> than uh, than uh, than Tavi was doing already although it's got to be said um he basically got the same from Cunningham anyway so you know hey ho uh, lose some lose some i think is the, yeah. <laughs> the one for one of that one for uh, for for Churchill but yeah he's 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 a fascinating character um about which i think more needs to be known mm-hmm. um and he looks at this and he's not desperately happy from the off um he thinks it's nuts basically um he understandable <laughs> it's yeah it it's taking an aircraft carrier group up um into the midnight sun um so no dark to cover um cover the airstrike at all Really, the fleet air arms aircraft at this point in, in 1941 are not really capable of dealing with uh, um, with the, the best of the, the Luftwaffe's land-based aircraft, which is basically what they're going to be facing when they turn up there. Um, and he, he thinks this is a potentially a bad idea and oh yeah you know we're, we're not actually at war with finland by the way and we're just about to about to technically violate a, a neutral country so um 
Yeah, yeah he's, he's not good first in this, though, isn't there? It is going to be innovative. Um, it's terrifying and slightly morally skewed. Um, but you've mentioned in your notes because I'm not going to pretend that Beth and I are experts and that we've read up on this because <laughs> we're like, just teach us, Phil, let us soak up the knowledge. Uh, so you put first use of refueling at sea um, and a rare use of a particular fighter in a bombing role. Uh, so it is. It is out there, isn't it? They're going to have to do some pretty imaginative stuff to get this done. Yeah, um, to to a large degree. I mean, it's um, I mean, I've sort of depicted it as um, a bit of a, a a bit of a losing prospect and all the rest of it. And there are aspects of that, but it's also, as you say, it's, it's uh, quite innovative. And this is. What they do, um, what Tavi does, is he puts together uh, an aircraft carrier strike force, arguably the most powerful the Royal Navy can put together at this point. Um, two aircraft carriers, HMS Victorious and HMS Furious, the, the old First World War um, converted battle cruiser. Um, Victorious, absolutely brand new, of course. And... Uh, escorted by a couple of cruisers under the command of uh, Rear Admiral Frederick Wake Walker, who <clears throat> who you may possibly remember from uh, from the Dunkirk bit. He was the guy in charge at sea. Um, he's also obviously done the uh, the shadowing of the Bismarck as well. So he's uh, something of a rising star at this point. Um, it's furious and... that one from World War One that basically they, the first aircraft carrier that's, where that's it looks like a giant garden shed plonked on a battleship that's the one yes yeah yeah the, the listeners google the it it's battle. hilarious you're like really really <laughs> <laughs> she she goes through a few a uh, few changes and she looks rather different um by the time you get to 1941 but um it looks a bit more like what you would anticipate an aircraft carrier to to look like but yeah the the first world war version when I mean, she starts out with the the flying off deck at the front and the 18 inch gun at the back um which the the 18 inch gun over the stern is then replaced by a big say, sort of shed piece um, the hangar and flight deck but still with a the battle cruiser bridge work in the um right in the center and um, it's it's quite fascinating to see the evolution but yes it's um, HMS Furious is is the uh, the oldest carrier the Navy's got, and uh, yeah, um, quite a remarkable record. So, but yeah, he's, he puts together Tully puts together this force, gives it to to Wake Walker, um, who's flying his flag aboard the cruiser HMS Devonshire. They put pretty much the best aircraft that they can find on it, and I mean it's. Um, four strike squadrons uh, of three of the uh, still relatively new Fairy Albacore um, replacement for the Swordfish. It's still a biplane, but um, surprisingly, in, in some respects, a lot better. It's got vastly better range. It's got a um, enclosed cockpit, heaven forfend, to uh, to stop people freezing to death <laughs> and this sort of thing. Um, it's noticeably quite a lot bigger than the swordfish as well. And you've also got uh, uh, 812 Squadron, which uh, which is the, the sort of 
last remaining standout with uh, with swordfish um are they they're a, um they're an interesting squadron and they they've uh, fought their way through dunkirk and uh, and various other bits I and mean, there's another dunkirk connection and and one of their senior pilots is a um sort of naval legend um by the name of Roy Baker Faulkner, a sort of tall, good-looking Canadian guy um, who you know, flies. I mean, in the end, I think he's he's almost a, a sort of fleet air arm guy, Gibson. He flies something like hundred odd missions and um, you know, leads the, uh, the spectacular um, bombing of the Tirpitz in 1944. Mm-hmm. Sadly, uh, losing his life shortly thereafter on a on a again sadly nearly pointless flight um unlike gibson though he's uh, he's actually a, a decent guy <laughs> nice, <laughs> nice bloke um but yeah and he's also a sort of taller rugby playing guy as well but he's he's, he's a fascinating character um which you know, at some point we really ought to do a podcast on something like that this face just lit up at the rugby player bit so, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> So yeah, Beth will be hosting that one with you as well. <laughs> yes. Um... <laughs> <I> mean... <laughs> oh, Beth, Beth, also, I should tell you, Phil, that I don't know how much of these you listen to, but we got given a, a copy yesterday of a book called The History of Sweets. So she's had a really good week with potential podcasts. <laughs> this, really... this has been your week, hasn't it, Beth? It really has. It's uh, all things considered. It's gone quite well for me this week. (laughs) Um, Excellent. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So, yeah, you've, you've got, uh, say, probably the most, uh, the most modern set of aircraft they can get with just the, the, the one um, holdout of, uh, squadron of swordfish. Um, you've also got the um, Fairy Fulmer uh, two-seat fighter, which is um, they sort of started re-equipping with around the, the time of the Battle of Britain. And um, so useful piece of kit with good range, um, eight guns and uh, and you know, useful maneuverability, but was desperately so, not least because it you know, had the same sort of Merlin engine as the uh, the Battle of Britain Spitfires and Hurricanes, and um, also had a, a second seat for for an observer. And uh, yeah, that was 
a little bit of a problem in performance terms if you were finding yourself up against a, a Messerschmitt 109. Um, but you also, as I mentioned, um, the at-sea refueling. Now, this was something that um, really had been started you know, practicing. I know the Royal Navy had actually tried to, to do some refueling at sea before the First World War with uh, you know, trying to transfer coal. But, I mean, that was just a horrible mess um, and extremely <laughs> slow. I think they actually ended up transferring less coal than they were burning at the time. But, uh, I mean, this was something the inter- Royal Navy had been interested in, really, for, for a lot of years. Um, and they had figured out ways of doing it, um, usually with using the the big battleships and so forth to to refuel destroyers but hadn't really done it from a tanker to a to a major warship in the way that we sort of think about uh refueling at sea being done now um this was something the americans had really started with um back in the first world war in 1917 and one of the first examples they did was actually when they came across to ireland um, that, that was one of their first sort of operational refueling at sea jobs. The British hadn't really done it that much, um, not least because Britain's got bases all over the world and you just pull into a port for the most part, particularly during peacetime, and refuel somewhere. But, um, yeah, for, for this one, in order to get the range um, on the on the carriers and the, the rest of the force – Really, for the first time, they take with them this uh, this refueling group of, of Royal Fleet Auxiliary tankers um, with the intention of refueling at sea on their way up to to, to get them there. So and this, it's it is, as you say, really quite innovative in in that uh, in that sense. And yeah, I mean, as as you mentioned, it's it's also one of the one of the very few times that I've ever seen the uh, the former fighter used as a fighter bomber. Mm. which was slightly curious given it's uh it's sort of semi-bomber um genealogy in terms of design but there we go um yeah it's it's one of the few times they actually did that so yeah it's it's really quite innovative um as they as they set it up so what actually happened then phil what what really went on because it it's as you've kind of alluded to in, in certain aspects, and I think we can all sort of come to a realisation that it probably hasn't gone particularly well, has it? It's it's not a, a success story through and through. It seems like it's something that we don't really want to do, but the Russians want us to, so we're like, oh, all right then. Yeah, so we're not we're not fully into it, are we, really? Yeah. Yeah, um, there is a... Certainly, a degree. Well, yeah, it's it. It is absolutely the case that the Russians are saying we need need you to do something about this, and certainly the, the Royal Navy is sat there saying, yeah, th- this is not a terribly good idea. Although, I mean, they they, they do go for it um, as as best they possibly can, and I, I say it's pretty innovative operation with uh, with one of the most powerful. Well, with the most powerful carrier strike force that they can put together so it's it's not a lack of willingness i suppose but yeah there there is a um distinct 
lack of happiness that they're being being, uh, being pushed into this. And I mean, it, it doesn't go terribly well from the off um, because, um, as with uh, as as ends up being the case, you know, bear in mind we haven't run the first um, Arctic convoy yet. That st- kicks off mid-August, uh, around the twelfth of August, I think, is the the first of the Arctic convoys leaves um, leaves Liverpool, uh, the Dervish convoy. So this is actually preceding the the, the start of the Arctic convoys, and. They they sort of follow the uh, the similar route, so they head up from Scapa Flow. They go to Iceland first to refuel. Um, so you know, really keep the the tanks topped off, then head north, um, refueling along the way, um, just to again sort of keep the the tanks topped off, um, and head for the strike. I mean. It, I say it didn't just to dial myself back a bit. I mean, it, it didn't actually start terribly well because I mean, one of the the destroyer um, escorts um, escorting the the group runs into a mine as they're heading into Iceland. I mean, it's, this is, um, and the the ship survives, but it's uh, as I say, it's not not the best of omens, if you will, for, for the start of the operation. But they they head up and say they they. Do the their refueling bit successfully, um, and find themselves off um, off Petsamo and uh, and Kirkenes. and they then sort of you know, bright daylight start ranging up on the flight decks uh, um, to to launch the strike and you know, mu- as much force as they can possibly muster, um, both both fighters and uh, and. Uh, the strike bombers. Unfortunately, um, literally, as they're they're ranging up um, relatively early in the morning, they get spotted. Um, Heinkel reconnaissance aircraft spots them. And of course, radios are warning in. Now, it's considered by, you know, Wake Walker sits there and looks at them, you know, should we should we call it off? Should we not do this and back off? But decides that, you know, what the hell, um, maybe we'll be able to catch them unawares. They uh, hopefully won't be able to react quickly enough. And we're, you know, the aircraft are literally just flying off into the air at that point. And he said, right, the hell with it. Let's, let's just do it. Um, and they go in. To, to try and basically sink whatever uh, German transports and uh, and supply ships are, are sat in these these two ports. Um, Furious is uh, is given Petsamo uh, on the the Finnish side, and Victorious with the uh, with her um, Furious has got the the Swordfish, so slightly shorter range, and uh, and Victorious with the uh, the full Albacore. Um, Air group has is, is given the uh, given Kirchenes, mm. and really, as I, it goes pretty badly. They arrive, um, and there's there's pretty much nothing in there in either port. There's there's virtually no ships at all. Um, very little uh, in terms of 
facilities that they can they can hit or anything like that. So they you know, torpedo, <laughs> strangely, a, a couple of uh, a couple of piers, bomb a couple of fuel tanks, and that's really about kind of it. Um, the key bit, really, though, is that you know, basically they run into, and particularly the uh, the, the guys flying over Herkenes. Uh, because it's Norway and the Norwegian airfields are in you know, really serious, uh, you know, seriously close. The Luftwaffe responds rapidly and um, Kirkenes is, it's a mess. Um, they, they lose, I think it's 11. I mean, that's, that's almost an entire squadron, um, 11 of the Ferry Albacore strike bombers and, uh, and I think it's four of the, uh, the former fighters. Um, the, the strike on Petsamo by, uh, by the, the furious air group, I think they lose, what is it? Uh, two, one or two Albacores and a, and a former. So, I mean, they, they also get intercepted by, by German fighters, but the, the resistance is far less, but Kenes is, is just a, just a horror show. And uh, as I say, they've, they've basically sunk one ship, torpedoed a couple of, uh, you know, a couple of piers, bombed a, a couple of fuel tanks, and virtually lost a, a, a complete squadron of, uh, of albacores. Um, and they, they then sort of fly back to the, uh, to the carriers and, uh, and land on and, and start to get out of there. Um, but I mean, they, they have another job to do, which is part of the reason for the, the refueling um, setup. And they are supposed to run another raid on, uh, on Tromso on the way back. Uh, again, Norwegian port uh, to try and uh, to try and sever the supply lines. Uh, so what they have to do is transfer basically a, a squadron. Um, it was essentially uh, uh, Roy Baker Faulkner's eight one two squadron, the Swordfish, go over to uh, to Victorious, and Furious is just sort of sent home because you know the losses have just been so high; it's just ridiculous. And they they reinforce Victorious's air group from uh, from Furious and send Furious home to try and uh, run this second operation. Which again, they I think they they run a um, run a reconnaissance over it this time and discover that it's you know, there's nothing really there. So they they then turn for home and uh, and head home. But I mean, it's it's been a mess. Um, Jack Tovey is absolutely scathing about it. And he, he sort of sits there and says, you know, told you this was going to happen. Um, <laughs> and he, he, he says, uh, praises the, uh, the um, gallantry and, uh, and you know, wonderful uh, bravery of his, his pilots and so forth. And he says, you know, um, the losses have, have been severe. Um, but I, uh, he says, uh, I very much hope. Oh, no, I trust that the encouragement to the morale of our, our allies was proportionately great, as obviously as the as the losses suffered. Um, it's 
you'd call it, I suppose these days you'd call it passive aggressive, although I'm not entirely sure how passively that was written. Mm. Um, he, he was not a happy bunny because, you know, obviously they've, they've just lost one of their, their main strike squadrons um, for very, very little result. Um, the, the form has managed to, to shoot down a, uh, I think it was a two uh, ME109s, I think, in the process of this. Uh, but the, the loss is just horrifying and it's, uh, it's something of a mess. Mm. So beyond appeasing Russia, is there anything to take from this? Well, um, it was really obviously a, a good sort of first experiment in, in what might be termed um, modern aircraft carrier actions um, in terms of getting up there um, with the, the ATSI refueling and uh, and this sort of thing. But yeah, the, it's difficult to say what the carrier strike itself um, really achieved. I mean, a Apart from the the, the obvious um, stuff that I've mentioned already, whether it seriously discouraged um, the Germans from continuing to to supply Dietl's forces at sea is an open question. Um, possibly, possibly not. I suspect really more to the point was um, really what uh, what I think. Tavi actually wanted to do, which is to use submarines to to interdict the uh, uh, interdict the supply lines, which both the uh, the Royal Navy and particularly the Soviets, who had actually had a very very good um, and actually really quite successful uh, submarine force, this is what they actually do, and they they do this over a over a prolonged period. Now, say whether or not the addition or the additional knowledge uh, of the Germans that the, the British could actually turn up with a, a carrier airstrike at any point. Um, and potentially, had they been slightly luckier, had there been more um, ships in harbour or whatever, actually done some real damage to the supply lines, it's it's an open question and, and probably not one we'll ever really get to the bottom of. Um but the, the the actual interdiction of the supply lines is is useful and it does help because you know, fairly obviously Murmansk does not fall. Um, Dietl's uh, uh, offensive into into Russian held territory doesn't get there, so you know there there is an effect. Uh, his his logistics are affected by this this campaign, and. Uh, Mamansk survives, and the the Arctic convoys keep uh, keep going and keep running. So the the naval campaign, in and of itself, was a success, um, or you know, at least contributed to the the successful uh, defense of, uh, of um, the Mamansk Oblast by uh, by Soviet forces. As to whether Operation EF, which was was its code name, um, the carrier strike contributed, as I say, difficult to say. I, you'd like to say yes. There is a, at least a good chance that it's no. 
Phil, thank you so much for coming on to educate Beth and I about something we didn't even know existed. Because yeah. <laughs> we really didn't. <laughs> Not at all. It's boats and it's my pleasure World entirely. <laughs> yeah. No, thank you. That was outstanding. Um, thank you, Phil. Yeah, I had no idea that we were that far up. Like I, I knew the convoys, but I didn't know that there was a strike happening up there and mm. more stuff. And I also didn't know that like everybody was trying to get into the Soviet Union at the same time. <laughs> yeah, that that bit's. I mean. Uh... The, the Finland bid is obviously awkward um, because, of course, you know, Finland was at the time and you know, remains a, a democracy and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's one of those uh, odd ones that goes against the whole, oh, democracies don't fight each other. Well, it's like when you think about the reason we went into World War One because somebody stomped into Belgium when they had no right to. Well, it wasn't really the reason we went into World War One, but it was touted as. Um, poor mm. little Belgium, a bigger nation trampling over a smaller one to get what it wants. And that's kind of what we're all doing here. Yeah. But I mean, you're, you're, you're quite right. I mean, it's something I need to need to do something on somewhere down the line um, is that the naval campaign against Norway, I mean, everybody sort of knows about the Norwegian campaign in 1940, but... Mm. The naval war, and obviously the the Arctic convoy is a significant part of this, but the naval war up the Norwegian coast is a surprisingly regular thing. The the home fleet keeps running aircraft carrier strikes, just you know, just pot up, potter up there and batter the snot out of uh, of German merchant shipping, taking iron ore out of uh, out of Narvik and so forth. And they don't do this on a fairly regular basis, and it's. It's actually one of the few instances where the Americans join in as well. They, I think it's 40, 43. Mm. The Americans send the carrier Ranger to join the home fleet. And it's one of the, the few times one of their big carriers actually runs a, uh, runs a carrier strike in the uh, um, Atlantic or in the European theatre. Is, is this one where they... You know, they join the home fleet and disappear off up the Norwegian coast, smashing stuff up. Um, and it's, it continues right the way throughout the war and nobody really kind of knows about it. They, they know the, I say they, they know the Arctic convoys. They know that the Norway campaign in 1940, but the, the rest of it is a, is a bit of a mystery to, uh, to a lot of people. And yeah, they, this is one of the key points of it. Um, I mean, so they, they were even still running, um, I think they ran two carrier, one or two carrier strikes on the Norwegian coast. See, even in the middle of the Battle of Britain, they're still <laughs> they're yeah. doing this that that nobody really knows about, um, and everybody forgets. So, yeah, it's it's an interesting campaign and one I I really ought to do something more on. You got loads of free time, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Although I don't Definitely. know about Beth, but I'm absolutely nicking that phrase, batter the snot out of. <laughs> you can have this, that one this time, Alex. I'll let you have that one. <laughs> that one. Beth's still scarred. When we come off air, I'm going to tell you why no one at History Hack is ever going to look at snot in the same way again. But Phil, thank you very, very much for coming on to uh, augment Boaty Week with the World War II. When our guests join us to talk about their work in their new book, 
the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 